Christmas is a holiday filled with traditions, right? We, we decorate our homes both inside and out. Uh, inside, we, we place up Christmas trees and we hang stockings. Uh, outside, we hang lights and Christmas wreaths. Um, at, at church, we might do something like this with a wreath and candles around a, a tradition, a Christmas tradition. We send Christmas cards, we wrap presents, we bake cookies, we purchase poinsettias, we say Merry Christmas, we eat too much, we spend too much, and uh, we just have our, our, our traditions. Now you and your family might have your own special traditions, I'm not sure what they are, and, and they're wonderful if you have a, a family that, you know, you just, just do what you do. I know that our kids enjoy this special uh, family calendar, Advent calendar with the little stickies, what is it? What is it, Steffi? It's, oh yeah, okay, well it's food involved in that particular kind of food, but there's a, a little Mary and Joseph that kind of go on 25 little things on their, on their traveling to, um, to Bethlehem. And like, who moves that? Do you move that or does David, move, who does that? Uh, One of them does it, but they're very clear, right? Today is the 14th and so it will be 14 days. Is it 14th today? No, what's today? The 11th. It will be on the 11th spot, I'm telling you. It's like a, a, a tradition they do, and I'm sure that you have others in your home. But one of the traditions that stands firm in front and center when we think about Christmas is our music. And when you think about Christmas time, it's when you pull out the music. Rarely played any time throughout the year, unless you're at the Dean household, right? I, I understand that you guys play Christmas music a lot throughout the year, yes? Yeah, Grace, is that right? Yes? Are you bought into that or not? No, you're not bought into that. Okay, so they play it quietly in their bedroom or something? No? Fair, fair, fair. Okay, so the deans, are maybe, maybe some of you, others are exception, but for most of us, probably Thanksgiving until the New Year's is when um, the music plays. Rarely played during the other months, but all of a sudden on the radio, in the stores, in our homes, even at church... We sing hymns December that we never sing otherwise, like we sang today, right? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Good Christian men rejoice. I mean, we'll just sing songs now that we wouldn't sing at other, other times. And Christmas songs in general are called Christmas carols. Now, that spans the spectrum from secular to religious. These Christmas carols do, and these tunes are all over that. Some are fast, like Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell Rock, Right, you're jingling that. Some are slow, like silent night, holy night. Some are slow. Some are, are like fiction and frivolous. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose. And some speak clearly of what Christmas is about, the incarnation. Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown. When thou camest to earth for me, there was Christ in heaven, this kingly crown coming to earth for me. But there are, you know, there are some Christmas songs, eminently biblical, that we don't sing today. We, we, we just don't. Uh, they're found in the Bible. Uh, so they're found in Luke chapters 1 and 2. In fact, if you have your Bible, I invite you to open up to Luke chapters 1 and 2. If you... Turning in your pew Bible, 855 on the the pew Bible there. And I want you to look at Luke chapter 1. 
And, and so I just kind of the broadest per- picture, just, just look, and you can find there are four different, um, how, how do you say it, sections of poetry here in Luke chapter 1. The first one is found in chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. This is the Song of Mary. Uh, the second one is found in chapter 1, verses 67 through 79, and that's the prophecy of Zechariah. There's a, a little one found in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, um, which is the song and the anthem of the angels at the birth of Christ. And the fourth one is found in, in chapter 2, verses 29 to 32. It comes from the, the mouth of Simeon. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at these songs of Christmas that I've entitled simply Songs of Christmas. We're going to look at Zechariah this week, um, verses 67 following. Next week, we're going to look at Mary's psalm. We're going to go backwards. And then we're going to look on Christmas Eve at 2.14, that of the angels. And then on Christmas morning, we're going to look at the, the word of Simeon in 25 to to 32 as these uh, I'll, I'll pile up. And I say we don't sing them. We don't sing them in our church. There are other more liturgical churches that sing them. Um, and and I'm, I'm trying to that sing them, maybe chant them, maybe say them, particularly three of them. Um, the Magnificat, which is Mary's song, which looks there right in, in verse 46. It even has its name, Magnificat, from the Latin of the very first word, my soul magnifies, magnificent is the Lord. And also Zechariah's prophecy is also spoken or sung in liturgical churches, sometimes almost daily. These are daily prayers that are sang or sung with Gregorian chant in some liturgical churches. And Zechariah's prophecy even has its own name. It's called the, the Benedictus, right there from the Latin, the verse 68, the very first word, Benedictus, the, the, the blessing. And, and then often even Simeon's words are um, are are sung or, or even said on these daily prayers as well. That one has its own name as too as well. It's called the Nuke Dimit, Dimitus. Now you dismiss, right? Dismiss your sermon in, servant in peace. That's just what the Latin, uh, the very first phrase of it is. Now, why chapter 2, verse 14 isn't included in these daily prayers? And that's from Catholic to Anglican to Episcopal. I mean, these high church ritual, formulaic prayer sorts of churches go over these a lot. But we in our church... We don't. We just, we just don't know these. Technically, they're not songs, okay? There's no music to them, but they are poetry, not written in rhyme and meter, not easily sung at, at Christmas, but they could be. Now, now, some people have put, say, like Mary's psalm, Mary's song in verse 46 and following to music. In fact, I, I saw on the internet over 100 different versions of the Magnificat uh, are there that are sung, but they're oftentimes sung in Latin, so it really doesn't doesn't help us a lot. I'm sure there are some rhyme and meter versions of that that could be sung at Christmas time. That might be a good project, Ryan. I'm just going to just, just think about that at, at some point. But these songs just aren't popular. You don't hear these songs on the radio. We don't sing them as a congregation, but I, I, it'd be good for us to be familiar with them. And so that's what we're going to do as we look at the songs of Christmas. So why are we starting with Zechariah's prophecy first? Why not, why not Mary? Well, um, one reason is because Luke begins telling about John the Baptist. And so I thought what we would do today is, is look through John the Baptist, hear the story of, of Zechariah, hear the story of Elizabeth, and then jump into 
um, Zechariah and his prophecy. And we'll catch up Mary next week. So let's, let's just read verse 67 and, and following. I just want to read it for you there. This is Zechariah. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah, of course, is the father of John the Baptist. His story begins back in Luke chapter 1 and verse 5 after Luke gives his prologue, his specific purpose of why he's writing his gospel to, to set out forth for you, Theophilus, the things in consecutive order just closely in an orderly way that you might know the truth about things that, that you've been taught, he begins with really the, the dawning of the Messianic age, with the coming of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah. We read verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They both were righteous before God, walking blamelessly, in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. It tells you that Zechariah was a priest. That means he was of the line of, of Moses, of Aaron, of the Levites. His wife was Elizabeth. And though they were righteous before God, blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, they, they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. And, and like Abraham and Sarah... They were advanced in years, that is, beyond the time of, of having children. Now, it just so happened, as verse 9 says, that he was, Zechariah was, was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This was a daily affair of the priests. Once every morning and once every evening, incense had to be placed upon that altar so that incense would always be burning before the Lord according to the command of the Lord, Exodus chapter 30, verse 7. And Zechariah had been chosen by Lot, and I would suspect, being a priest for a long time, as he was advanced in years, he had probably had a number of times in which he did this as they rotated through the, the priests in a, in a random, God-ordained, Lot-like order. I suspect that Zechariah had done this a couple times. Uh, but this time was like no other. When he encountered the temple... He entered, he encountered, when he entered the temple, he encountered the angel of the Lord. We find out later his name is Gabriel. And um, this angel was standing right there in the temple, just to the right side of the altar. And obviously, Zechariah was afraid. I mean, you would be afraid as well. Imagine maybe Christmas morning coming down 
right, to, to your presence or whatever, and all of a sudden there's an angel standing here. You'd be like, whoa, this is, this is strange. This is fearful. In fact, uh, Zechariah entered into the veil, and he was the only one there. Everyone else was outside praying. It was a very solemn time. And the angel said to him in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Well, that's all well and good, but it's difficult to believe. I mean, if you were Zechariah, I think you might find struggles and difficulty in in believing it. I don't don't care what sort of of supernatural experience you have, right? I don't don't care what angel you see or how how glorious it is. If your wife is past childbearing age, you're told you have a baby, it's tough. Like Sarah, when she was 90, what she heard through a conversation that Abraham was having outside the tent that she would have a baby. And you remember her response. What did she do? She, she laughed. Like, oh, yeah, it's a laugh of disbelief, I, I think. And so we have Zechariah here failing to believe the angel. And, and it's all justified in, in many ways. I mean, we can understand it, I guess. It's never justified not to believe the Lord, right? But, but we can understand. And so because of his unbelief, the angel said, verse 19 and 20, I am Gabriel. <clears throat> I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Gabriel was bringing good news, and Zechariah didn't believe the good news. And so he came out of the temple mute, unable to say a word. And you can read 21 through 23, basically that people were worried because Zechariah was in there a little bit longer and then they came out and he was waving with his hands and trying to communicate what was, what was happening. And, and after some time, maybe he could get some writing out and could communicate what was, was happening. But soon afterwards, we find in verse 23 that the time of service ended and he went to his home in the hill country of Judah. Perhaps retiring, perhaps on disability, right? because a priest without a voice may have difficulty in his duties. And lo and behold, in uh, verse 24 and 25, we see that Elizabeth conceived. Okay, I want you to put yourself in Zechariah's situation now. Right? That he <clears throat> encountered this thing, he can no longer talk, but he can think, and it's come true. But he's not going to be able to talk for another nine months. But he can think. And I'm sure that in his mind, he relived his encounter with Gabriel over and over and over again. I mean, it's often when, what happens when people face some kind of life-changing event. Um, 
whether good or bad, some tragic event or some some very very good event. So some accident in your family or some if you have a house burned down, you're going to remember the day when your house burned down, 15, 20 years later probably. Or if you have a heart attack, you're going to remember maybe when you have a heart attack or some sickness befall you, or, or if things go really well, maybe you remember the, the award you received, or the phone call that you had, or maybe you remember the day that your child is born, remember the day when you came to faith in Christ, or perhaps most of you who are old enough remember where you were when you heard of September 11th. Just catastrophic events have, have a way of impressing upon our minds just this memory that won't go away, that we, we dwell on. And Zechariah surely remembered this day as well. I would not be surprised if he remembered the exact date. It was December 15th when I was chosen by Lot. And if he could have talked, he could have said everything about what happened when he went into that place. But I'm sure that the image, right, of the angel was impressed on his mind. If there was a police lineup or an angelic lineup, if you will, he could have picked out Gabriel from all of them because he saw who he was. And I'm sure that Zechariah well remembered what the angel was wearing and, and what he said. And, and with nobody to talk to, I, I imagine that he had this sort of internal conversation with himself, trying to wrestle through these things. Okay, what, what did this angel said, say? He, he said we would, would have a son? Does this angel know how old I am? Do, doesn't he know how old my wife is? How did the angel know? But we did. We, we are pregnant. Elizabeth will have a baby. How does he know it's his son? How do, why should I call his name John? <clears throat> I mean, there isn't anybody in our family named John. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Why, why, why this? And then he said that I would have joy and gladness. So, of course, wouldn't any father have joy and gladness having a son? But it seemed like the angel was saying that you particularly are going to have joy and gladness. Abraham did and Isaac, so maybe that's a similar sort of way, a, a child of my old age, I, I don't know. But, but even the, Gabriel said that many are going to rejoice in the birth. What, what, what's going to be so special about this boy that many are going to rejoice? We're just simple folk. We live in the country. We, we don't know a lot of people. How are many going to rejoice? And he, this, Gabriel said that he's going to be great before the Lord. I mean, doesn't every father believe that about his son? I mean, that's, that's easy to believe. But, but what does that mean? What, what does it mean that he will be great? And, and will he really be great? And, and he said this funny thing about strong drink. Like, he should never drink strong drink? Is that like a, is, should he be a Nazarite? Is that a Nazaritic vow of what he should do? Should he not cut his hair either? I mean, that's what number six says. I, I don't know how... How is it? He said that through him, many would turn to the Lord. Maybe that's what makes me happy is because I, I'm in the Lord's service. I'm a priest and, and he is a preacher turning people to the Lord. That would be a, a wonderful thing. But how does he know? And he said, this is, this is really strange. How did, he said that he'd go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. Spirit and power of Elijah. What, what does that mean? Are, are we waiting for Elijah? It's is, is my son Elijah? Like, or is the power of Elijah? I may ever study Elijah. He, he'd make people ready for the Lord. That means the Lord's coming, coming next. He said he'd turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. 
I know that's exactly what Malachi prophesied. Could he really be Elijah? Is he the forerunner? Is, it, is this what scripture said? And that sort of thing. I'm sure just for nine months. Room, I mean, he can't talk. And maybe he can communicate somewhat. He's out doing his chores. He's just got time that he can think. And this one place says, oh, the things you can think. Right? All the different things that would come into his mind as he'd rehearse this over and over and over and over again. And I have no doubt that he became one who scoured the scriptures about Elijah. Reading 1 Kings and 2 Kings, the beginning of 2 Kings. Reading all about Elijah's quirky ways. And reading all about his miracles. And if my son is going to come in the power of Elijah, what, a, what an amazing thing that would be. And, and the victory won on Mount Carmel when he stood up for God all alone. And all the prophets of Baal were defeated because God brought down the fire from heaven. And I'm sure you would have read of his, his chariot ride up into heaven. This is a glorious man was Elijah. And I bet he devoured the prophecy of Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that's really the heart of what Gabriel said, right? That Elijah is going to come before the day of Messiah. That Elijah will turn the heart to the people back to the Lord. And as he's ruminating on these things, in comes Mary. And and, and Mary likewise had a, a similar encounter with the same angel, Gabriel, appearing and prophesying of a child, though though her circumstances are are different that Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age, but Mary in her young age is a virgin. And sure enough, that's the prophecy, and when she'd come. She was pregnant. And Zechariah had three months to hand signal, communicate, talk with Mary about these things. To inquire and ask. (coughs) Three months going over and over again. So here this angel visited me. And this angel visited Mary. Similar sort of things. He said, mine's going to be the forerunner. He said different things, which we'll look at next week in in Luke chapter 1 about about Christ and what, what he is going to be. But my guess is that Mary's presence caused Zechariah to think long and hard, not, not only about his son, but about Mary's son, the Messiah. What it means that Messiah is coming. What does it mean that Mary will be his mother? That his son would be Elijah preparing the way for him. So thinking about the forerunner, his son, John, and, and Jesus, who will save his people from their sins, and, and wrestling all these things in mind. And I, and I say that, he's wrestling with both of these, because the first thing that comes out of his mouth is his prophecy, prophecy in verses 68 and following. And uh, it's all about Jesus, and it's all about John. Because I think that's what he's been thinking on these last nine months. Before we get to his prophecy, let's just pick up the story in verse 57. <clears throat> now the tam- time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors 
and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. They said to her, none of your relatives called by that name. And they made a sign to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loose and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up on their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So there you see even the first prophecy of, of, of Gabriel talking about how many are going to hear and many rejoice and many be glad as, as it goes all the way around the hill country because it's, it's so strange and so wonderful that on the very moment he named John was the very moment he gained his voice back. And it said that he spoke blessing God. It, it may well be that these in verse 68 and following were the very first words out of his mouth. This is the blessing of God that he gave, because you see right there in verse 30, 64 that he's blessing God, and that's how this starts, the benedictus, if you will, the blessing of God. And my outline this morning simply has two points, it's really easy, I even alliterated it for you, Jesus and John, because that's exactly what Zechariah is talking about. He talks about Jesus in verses 68 to 75, he talks about John in verses 60. 76 to 79. And uh, isn't it interesting that after naming his son John, Zechariah doesn't speak first of John, he speaks first of Jesus. And, And isn't it interesting that of the 12 verses of Zechariah's prophecy, the first eight are about Jesus, and the last four are about John. In fact, we're only going to find two of them are explicitly about John, and then his relationship to Jesus really later. So much of it's about Jesus, it speaks of his, his mind is, is appropriate, appropriately focused on the Messiah more than even his son. John the Baptist will do that later. He must increase, but I must decrease. Speaks of the priority of Jesus this Christmas season. Yes, John's important. As Jesus said, among women, there's been none greater than John the Baptist, among women born, there's been none greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is far more important. But John was a man sent from God. Jesus was God coming from his throne. So here's our first point is Jesus. And I simply want to just exposit through these verses. Just let, let Zechariah speak. We're going to let me go through them fairly quickly. Just kind of talking about what Zechariah is talking about. There is rich theology here. There's much Old Testament phraseology, terminology uh, pulled in here, um, just just showing how saturated his mind was, scripture and scripture um, theology, and, and even uh, I would contend we could, we could preach the 12 days of Christmas easily preaching one of these verses each time because they're all so very rich. So, I mean, just leave and look at this first one, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and we can talk a lot about what, what it means that, that God has come and visited. I mean, you can just trace that biblically through how he's come and visited, but particularly Zechariah is talking about 
He has visited us. Gabriel has come. He's given us this message. This message, and he has um, come. The Holy Spirit has come upon Mary. This is the message of Christmas that God has seen our affliction. He has seen our sin. He has come and redeemed us in Jesus on the cross. As a result, he is to be praised. He is to be blessed, as Zechariah said. What's remarkable here is Zechariah spoke these words even before Jesus was born. In some regards, Zechariah steps back and watches all of redemptive history unfold and and say that that, uh, what began with an angelic vision to him in the temple telling of unbelievable things continued in this angelic vision to Mary, which is even more unbelievable things, like a virgin birth. Yet they came true, and and God's redemptive actions are are underway. John has been born. Jesus will be born in a few months. And what God began, Zechariah is confident that God would finish. Notice in the past tense, he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, there is some futuristic sense there that he's come, and he's visited us, or he saw us, he's going to. There's a there's a, a future aspect of this as well, but the reality is this, so what, what God begins, He accomplishes, what He promises, He fulfills, and God was bringing salvation to His people by redeeming them, buying them back, and as the story of the New Testament unfolds, of course, we know that happened with Jesus on the cross, and verse 69 addresses this salvation, that, that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, a, another just packed, packed verse with biblical allusions. They, here we see that really the saturation of Zechariah's mind. There are some instances in the Old Testament where, where the Lord is described the power, the horn of salvation, right? The horn in an animal. This isn't a blow horn. This isn't a da-da-da-da of salvation. This is like a ram's horn, right? This is the horn of protection. This is the, the, the horn that, that guards and, and guides. It is the, the strength and power so the horn of salvation is the power of God to save. Like Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. David speaks of the stronghold. It's stronghold, rock, refuge, shield, fortress, all those things. Just the, the strength of God to save and in the second half, right, he speaks about in the house of his servant David. That, that alludes to the fact that Jesus would come from the line of David. He'd be of the Davidic line. When it comes to the promises that God made, it was through David. And in fact, there are so many of them in the Old Testament that in some regards there's too numerous to count. They're, they're all over. Anybody who is asked of, of what line does the Messiah come, it's always the line of David. People know that it was through David, and maybe the most foundational, talking about this house terminology, comes in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, 2 Samuel 7, 12, I will raise, speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's exactly what... Verse 69 is talking about raise up a salvation in the house of his servant David. Here's the Davidic promise, the Davidic line coming. And his promise, Zechariah, was, was placing his hope. He's placing his hope in the promise of the prophets. Because the word of the Lord came to the prophets, spoke to us. In fact, that's exactly what he says in verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. 
They are the ones that spoke of the the Messiah coming from the line of David. And the prophet spoke promises like like Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, like we, we sing, like we hear, Handel's Messiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And of his increase, of his government, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, you just see this, this promise of salvation, the prophets provided through the house of David and Zechariah was on the, on the cusp of seeing these promises being fulfilled. What started in doubt in that day in the temple has come to fruition in full faith. As he sees it and he knows that what the prophet spoke is coming to pass. And Zechariah believed the Messiah was, was coming to save. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, of course, this is how Israel saw their Messiah. Primarily, it's one who's going to come and rescue them physically. And who can doubt the interpretation from what I just read for you, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, right? The, there's be no, of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end. The government's going to rest upon Messiah's shoulders. He's going to establish it from this time forth and forever. Like Messiah's going to come in, he's going to establish the government on his shoulders and he is going to rule and reign. Huh. okay. Um, I'm sorry. And, and who can doubt that? That that's what he's talking about, right? The physical... Uh, the physical dynamic of, of the government being there. And surely that is the plan of God. He will redeem Israel. But what the, the Old Testament prophets and disciples and Zechariah failed really to see was the mystery. Was, was Christ that, that he would come and redeem us spiritually from our sins. Only later would he redeem us physically when he establishes his kingdom. And, and that's, that's the mystery that even the disciples didn't see. Is it now you're going to establish your kingdom? And, and Jesus said, well, it's not for you to decide, but, but at all, this is a spiritual kingdom age, right? The government isn't upon Jesus' shoulders now in the sense that he's ruling and reigning in peace and evermore, but there'll be a day when he comes back when all his enemies will be a footstool for his feet, as Psalm 110 says. It's a message of mercy and grace, regardless of the physical kingdom or the spiritual kingdom, and that's what verses 72 through 75 say, to show mercy promised to our fathers. And to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And this fundamentally is the hope of Zechariah. That the coming of Jesus is a fulfillment of God's merciful covenant to Abraham. Just, just right there. Right there. Mercy promised to our fathers. The oath that he swore to Abraham. You say, what did he swear to Abraham? Well, Genesis 12. By God's sheer mercy and grace, God just chose Abraham. No reason why he should have chosen Abraham. Um, from the city of Ur, the, the Chaldeans, a wicked, idolatrous city. His family, while living in Ur, were idol worshipers. Whether Abraham involved in that or not, we don't know. It might be surprising that he didn't. And yet God chose to extend his mercy to this man. He, he picked him up and told him to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I'm going to bless you abundantly. In fact, if people bless you, I'll bless them. If people curse you, I will curse them. 
in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You can read about that in Genesis 12. There's the, there's the, the merciful promise that, uh, that God made with Abraham. This is the oath, verse 73. You're going to make you a great nation. Right? Through you, I'm going to be a great blessing to all the world. And then Paul picked up that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 9, and said basically that was a, a foreshadow of the preaching of the gospel, that in Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, meaning that, that through faith in Messiah of the line of Abraham, we will know and experience this blessing of Abraham because those who are faith who are sons of Abraham. And so great was the blessing to Abraham. It's come to us. It's come to us through Jesus. It's come to us through this baby born in Bethlehem that Zechariah only knew by promise that we can know through the passages of the Holy Scripture in the New Testament. But the aim and end of God's merciful dealings is ultimately here, verse 74 and 75, really application to us, right? That, that we might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Now, being without fear, I mean, that, that's, that's putting it to the final state where there's, there's no fear of God because He walks right among us. We are right with Him. To, today, there, there has to be a fear. But if you know Christ, you know your sins are forgiven, and you have assurance of that, and you're walking rightly, there, there's a sense where, yes, you fear the Lord, but there's a sense where you don't fear the Lord because as 1 John 4 says, perfect love casts out fear. When there's that perfect love with God and you're standing before Him in truth and righteousness of faith in Jesus, the fear is gone. Does this Christmas season find you serving the Lord without fear? Out of perfect love to Christ? Serving the Lord in holiness? That is walking rightly before the Lord. That is walking in purity before the Lord. Does this Christmas season find you serving the Lord in, in righteousness, as verse 75 speaks about? Just walking in righteous paths, walking in righteous ways? Does this Christmas season find you serving the Lord such that you do that all your days? That's what the, the promise was promise to Abraham, to his children, which extend to us in the gospel, that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray often for our kids. In fact, this is the prayer I pray for my kids more than anything else. I pray that they would love you with all their hearts for all their days. And that's the, really the purpose of Christmas. It's where Zechariah's prophecy is leading us this Christmas season to, to live a holy and righteous life. Well, let's turn to my second point. <clears throat> We're going to look at John because there's a pivot made in verse 76. And you, child, he is prophesying right directly over his son, John, who had just been circumcised, as we talked about last week. Here was this ceremony, eight days after he was born, he was circumcised, prophesying over him. And he says, in you, child, will be called, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. And the amazing thing is this, is that this all came true in John's life. He was called a prophet. You remember when, when Jesus was uh, being encountered by the, the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees, and they confronted Jesus when His triumphal entry said, tell Him to stop praising you. Tell Him to stop speaking these things. By what authority are you doing this? He says, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you by what authority I do this. If you tell me, what about, the, what about John? Whose authority did he come by? And they, they said, well, if we say by God, then we'll say, why, don't you, why do you say I'm not from God? But if you say from men, well, they were scared because all believed that John was a prophet. 
exactly like, pref- like Zechariah had, had promised. He'd be called the prophet of the Most High. And he did go before Jesus to prepare the way. You can look over there in John chapter, or Luke chapter 3. It's right there. Verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's who John said he was. He said, I was this one that Isaiah 40 speaks about, the one preparing the way until it comes, chapter 40. Uh, I think it's verse 11, maybe also verse 1. Behold your God. He's verse 11. Behold your God. Here he is. I'm preparing the way, but your God is coming. And who's coming? Of course, Jesus is the one that John prepared the way for. And this is often the case when God moves in the lives of his people. There's a connection with repentance. Because God looks upon the lowly. He looks upon the humble. He doesn't look to the high and mighty. And that's what John was. He was a preacher of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3, 2 was his message. That, that's what he called people for. He, he called them to repent. Look over Luke 3, verse 7. He's talking about his repentance and, and, and what they are. If you look back in chapter 3, verse 3, he, he went to all the region around Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the, the repentance. Know forgiveness and be baptized. And here, here's what it looks like. Verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Speaks condemning words to these men who didn't repent. And he refused to baptize them. But those who were soft, the crowds asked him, verse 11, right? They had broken hearts. What, What should we do? And here's what repentance looks like. Whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. And whoever has food, do likewise. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized. They said, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, what what should we do? And he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be content with your wages, right? In every way, he's bringing it back to money, how you deal with your finances, right? Be give, be generous, be gracious, right? But just demonstrate you have a heart for God and not a heart for yourself. And that really was fulfilling of verse 77 of the, the prophecy that, that John was going forth to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Just teaching them the way of salvation, very practical, many ways, just calling out for people to repent as they confess their sins. I have no doubt that they were confessing their sins as he was standing there in the River Jordan and baptizing them as a symbol, as a demonstration of of their forgiveness. In fact, that's what baptism is. That's what Christian baptism is. It's a symbol of cleansing. Where we're washed through and through. Right? We're buried with Him in baptism when we're raised again to walk in newness of life. We're just Im- completely immersed, completely washed, completely cleansed is the picture of John's baptism which prepared the way for Christian baptism. But as good as John's baptism was, he knew that it, it wasn't enough. He knew that that Jesus was ultimately the one that we needed. Remember, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he knew how much better Jesus was than he. And and in fact, when Jesus came to John to be baptized, 
Uh, I don't think it's in Luke, but in, in Matthew, there's, well, no, 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 I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus now says to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, to walk in our steps, he walked our baptism as well, completely doing all that he called us to do. But it was with resistance that he baptized him because he saw Jesus as so much greater than himself. And that's the spirit of Zechariah when he again turns and speaks about Jesus. Verse 78 Because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Jesus is the sunrise, the light, if you will, visiting us from on high. Um, Taken right from Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2, where it speaks about the the sun of righteousness is going to come. There's there's the light that's going to come and shine is what Zechariah prophesied of is exactly what happened. And in verse 79, we see this light imagery come again, right? To give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And, and of course, this pulls right from Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And that's Jesus. Jesus coming, he is the light. When John was asked, are are you the light? He said, no, no, but there is the true light which comes into the world and lightens every man. That Jesus is the one who who lights and Jesus is the one who forgives and Jesus is the one who purges. So just interesting here in the Benedictus, in Zechariah's prophecy, he spends so much of it talking about Jesus, the coming one. He talks about John, but his focus is upon Christ. I think it's the rest of songs of of Christmas here that we're going to be looking at here this um, this Christmas season. We've seen Zechariah. We're going to look at Mary and the angels and Simeon as well. They all are going to focus our attention upon Jesus, how, how great he is, how loving he is. And I think Christmas time, that's what we need to hear. What a great thing if we could sing the Benedictus, but we can't. Maybe some year we will. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we would pray that we would know Scripture as well as Zechariah. And we would pray that we would, um, God, just spend our time in silence, thinking, meditating much, that from our mouth would flow these words. But I pray even more, God, that we would grasp the significance of His words as, as Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises and that Christ has come to create in us a life of holiness and righteousness and walking with you without fear, God, for all of our days. And even as John came, John wasn't the light, but he pointed to the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. But even John wasn't taking glory for himself, but was pointing us to Jesus. And so, Lord, this Christmas season, God, point us to him. God, may we hope in him. May that be where all of our, all of our heart is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.